Welcome back, folks. Another Ag Watchers here. We've got a fantastic guest. We're very excited, Andrew and myself, because it's someone we follow a lot on Twitter and keep track of, obviously being interested in, in markets and economics particularly. Um, so we've asked Stephen Kukoulis to come on, um, a well-renowned uh, economist and uh, commentator on the market. Um, I believe he also had some experience uh, advising one of our polit- politicians, uh, prime ministers, at some stage there in his background. But I'll let Stephen give a bit of a rundown of who he is quickly. Um, if you, if you... I think it's really good to get, you know, one of the second best economists in the country. <laughs> <laughs> right. B- behind us. Yeah, all right. Yeah, yeah. 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 yeah no, exactly. That's okay. No, no. I'll, I'll, take, I'll take second best. <laughs> I think we're all, we're all evens here. Uh, you're not sure about that when it comes to um, some of the knowledge base, but um, yeah, Stephen, thanks for thanks for coming. I want to we we'll get you to do just a very short rundown of who you are for some of the agricultural listeners that might not be familiar with you, and um, and then we'll yeah. jump into our we'll jump into our psychology assessment that we always like to do, and then we'll and then we'll kick it off. Yeah, look, my name's Stephen Kukoulis. I've been an economist for gosh thirty something years now, so I've got a lot of grey hairs and. I've done a lot of things, you know, working in financial markets, working in the Federal Treasury. And as you alluded to, I spent a bit of time with uh, Julia Gillard when she was Prime Minister, which was a story for perhaps when I've had a few glasses of red, I can reveal <laughs> a few of the inner workings of that particular administration. And right now I've got my own little business. But at the end of the day, the things that are dear to my heart are you know, how the economy's going, obviously. That's a, an important part of... Um, how we make Australia a bigger and better and a more prosperous place. And linked to that is, you know, what are we doing with, um, you know, budget policy, spending and taxing from the government perspective, interest rates from the Reserve Bank of Australia, the Aussie dollar, you know, critically important to anybody who, for example, imports machinery and exports uh, whatever they produce. So the level of the Aussie dollar is important. And they're the sort of things that I tend to focus on. Yep, fantastic. Good summary. So we've got this thing we do called the sixth sense. We're going to fire a couple of words or phrases to you, Stephen. All we want is your um, is your first thing that comes into your mind. Feel free okay. just to, to to spill your guts. Andrew, do you want to fire so, your first so, one? So 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 one word or a very very short uh, a summary of what you think of each word and your and your ideas. So let's keep it short and simple. And then what we'll do is we will send those results to our. Uh, in-house psychiatrist <laughs> and then we'll get some uh, we'll get some feedback to you and then we will decide whether you can still continue to be uh, living on your own or whether okay. <laughs> you will have to be uh, heading to one of our local um, uh, asylums basically. okay I'll, gi- I'll give it a go so matt jump in with the first one inflation too high black pudding Horrible. This is already start. This is already starting it's off in a bad band, way. Yeah. <laughs> We're big fans of black pudding. Um, interest rates. Uh, unbelievably low. Permanent, per- permanent or transitory inflation. It's getting locked in. Um, Crocs footwear. Oh, hideous. Oh dear. oh dear, that's two strikes. That's two, two, strikes. two of our favourites. <laughs> house prices. It's always time to buy a house. Yep. All right. Very good. Some good answers there. Interesting stuff because we're going to cover off on on some of what we you know flesh out some of those those um, answers there. And I, I think I might start 
with inflation because I think it's been an interesting time both from the US and what's happening there in the US with their inflationary uh, you know kind of movements they've seen and what that means for interest rates there but also what it's kind of going to mean for Australia um, so we might uh, one of the questions I have and it's been you know I had, I had someone on Twitter not that long ago and for those that aren't aware you can fo- you can follow Stephen as well on Twitter it's at the kook um, k-o-u-k is that right Stephen? that's correct yes yeah um, I'm, 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 gonna, I'm gonna hazard a guess that everybody who follows us on Twitter probably already or, does or he follows an enemy yeah, but, probably it does. Um, but, um, yep, yep. but I was, I was, I had someone ask me a query the other day around that um, inflationary kind of cycle we're heading into, and you know, my view is that it's kind of we've seen this period of of, of um, higher pricing, and particularly in the US, it's to me largely a supply driven. Uh, you know, with all the with all the logistical issues, that it's more of oh, it's a more of a supply driven. Um, you know, kind of inflationary cycle we're heading into rather than a purely demand-driven one? Are you, are you, how do you see it? There's a lot of things at play, and, and you're quite right to identify that being one of the really important um, issues for policies and financial markets right now. It is inflation. Yeah, what, what's happened? You know, it, we, we look at the US and we can see a 7.5% annual inflation rate, you know, the highest in 40 years. Like 40 years, that's a long time be, uh, since the US had an inflation rate this high. It's a similar story in you know the United Kingdom, even in Eurozone and New Zealand. Here in Australia, we've not had quite that inflation lift, but there's clearly something going on. And as you quite rightly touch on, part of it's because of these supply chain problems that you know freight costs have been you know tripling, quadrupling. Uh, you know we can't get um, the items that we need, so we're in this absurd position. For example, in the car market, where the backlog to buy a brand new car in many models in Australia's six, eight months. And so people say, I need a car now. I need one. So I'm going to buy a secondhand one. I'm actually going to pay more for a secondhand car than a new car because I I need the car now. So that, of course, is inflation. So that's part of the issue, to be sure. But we've also got this um, uh, policy response and this demand response. So you you, you and I as consumers and as business people are investing, we're spending. And part of that's linked to these incredibly low interest rates. Now, that's possibly going to change. I'm sure we'll touch on that a bit later. But, you know, we've got interest rates at levels that have never been this low in Australia's economic history. You know, the official rates are 0.1%. For your mortgage rate, uh, they're starting to creep up already. But they're, you know, mid 2%, two and a half, two and three quarters, something like that. And a lot of business loans are also similarly low. So when interest rates are that low, you know, we Australians love debt. We borrow. When we borrow, we spend it on something. And that spending is also fueling part of this increase in inflation. So it's not just the supply chain issues, as important as they are. And the other thing to remember is that these inflation rates that we're seeing, um, even if they are to some extent transitory or temporary or whatever that word is you want to use, um, they're, they're still a million miles away from the target from the US Federal Reserve or the Bank of England in the UK or the Reserve Bank in New Zealand or here in Australia, it looks like inflation is going to be well above the, the, the target. So that says to me, there's something more going on that even if inflation does, does come down a bit in coming months, it'll still be above what most central banks are targeting. You make some really good points, Stephen, there. One thing that, as you were talking, come to mind, I, I did note, and for a lot of farmers out there that are listening that have, you know, most farmers, Stephen, will have 
five or six um, you know, land cruisers stashed away in, in sheds all over the place, you know, and they, they tend to like to buy them every second or third year. And, and the market for, for those types of four-wheel drive land cruiser products and Hiluxes has just gone berserk, the second-hand market. So, you know, I think Andrew's considering selling you know, one of his, uh, you know. I was, uh, was going to get rid of two of them uh, <laughs> because I, I, I can still continue to use the Porsche for, oh, yeah. for, for the next oh, couple yeah. of months. <laughs> um, yeah. I, just, I just don't like to keep them too long. Mm. Uh, uh, but, um, because, but because it's just it's just you need you need to keep them revolving all the time just to ensure that well, I don't like to get any dust and I also don't like to clean them so I just like to keep them and get rid of my Land Cruiser as soon as it gets a bit dirty. Yeah, well Fair that's enough. what I'm saying. If you're getting that high price for it, why not? Yeah, well the farmers <laughs> the farmers are well aware of the price of second hand Land Cruisers for sure because um because I think there's been a few that are cashing in. But the point I was going to ask you around that the demand side of the inflation equation, and I did see. Uh, you know, some discussion when we're going through the thick of COVID within Australia. Part of, you know, obviously a lot of you know, some key industries were impacted um, negatively, but there were a lot of um, people out there that were able to work from home, you know, continue going on, but with, with less kind of, I guess, outgoings. So the savings rate has actually been climbing, I believe, right, across the, the broad sector, um, despite those that were having to dip into their savings because they were out of work or whatever. That You know, the national saving rate's been growing, which is quite peculiar for Australia. Do you think that also feeds into that feeling that people are, are kind of, you know, haven't gone on holidays because you can't go overseas, um, you can't even go into state, indeed. Um, you know, so you've, you're kind of feeling a little bit cashed up and then certain sectors like, um, you know, house improvements or renovations or, you know, these kind of uh, uh, luxury purchases are being made and that's kind of helping to fuel that demand side as well. Oh, oh definitely. That, you know, and, and the other thing to remember too is that that fear of high unemployment didn't really eventuate. We only had, oh, six or nine months where unemployment was up and um, that was in the depths of the lockdowns, I suppose you'd call it. But, you know, here and now we've got unemployment just above 4% and it's probably going to be below 4% in the next few months. And that's great news because you know, everyone's got a job or almost everybody's got a job. We're earning money, you know, they're getting, you get paid when you work usually. Um, and when you get paid, you tend to spend a fair whack of that uh, amount of money as well. So you've got this whole situation where uh, the uh, household sector, we consumers are feeling pretty good. And then you throw into that mix what is often termed the, the wealth effect, uh, and that is how much money or how much wealth do we have? And you look at the house prices, which have gone absolutely crazy in the last 18 months or so. You look at the stock market, and notwithstanding this recent volatility, because they're all very, very choppy, yeah, the stock market's generally pretty strong. Uh, and when we feel wealthy, we consumers, you know, oh, gee, my house is worth you know, double what I paid for it eight years ago, or um, it's even up 25% in the last year. Oh, gosh, my super's doing okay. We tend to have an injection of confidence into our assessment of our financial position. And throw on top of that, if you've got a job, then you think, well, I'm going to spend. And throw on top of that, as you said, that household savings have been booming um, as we've not been able to do much this last uh, couple of years because of the lockdowns and border closures and all this other stuff. But we consumers are going to be the ones that, in my view, are going to be really important in seeing the economy uh, really kick along during the course of 2022, and as, as we're just touching on on inflation before, that, you know, that sort of strength in consumer spending is going to be one of the reasons why I think inflation is going to remain elevated through the course of this year. 
you know, here in Australia, probably around the world too. So when you throw in those other things, not just the consumer side of the economy, that you know, it keeps coming back to this view, in, in my view, that we're going to have inflation higher for longer. And indeed, the risks on inflation are very much to the high side. It could even be higher than we're currently forecasting. Yeah, what, and, uh, go, go ahead, so one of the things that we were talking about, we've been talking about for a while now, is uh, food inflation. Yes. Uh, and food inflation is probably not as strong or not as big of a issue over here as is in other parts of the world because it's still not a, a you know you, if you were to increase your spending on food by five percent it's nothing compared to what the rest of what you're spending your money on whereas if you go to other places around the world we're starting to find that food inflation is becoming more of an issue because it's a higher percentage of the overall spend and i was talking to somebody this morning about it um you know, we, we've got this, you know, Russian tension, tension at the moment in Ukraine. Uh, they, they're producing, you know, 30% of the world's wheat, 30% of the world's barley, uh, or exportable surplus of that, sorry. And and that's a real issue that we see sort of sort of developing is that these countries like Egypt, um, Algeria, um, Syria, all these countries have been feeling rampant food inflation, and they also are heavily reliant on bread. We don't eat that much bread per capita in Australia because we you eat a lot more sort of uh, diverse food food groups. But in those countries, uh, they are really sort of going to be hampered by massive food inflation if there is an invasion in Russia as prices go absolutely through the roof. And I think that's that's a really big risk at the moment. But I guess just relating back inflation to 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 farming is that that could cause you know conflicts far wider ranging than than what is actually occurring in the black sea region so indeed and that sort of uh and it's it's a sort of a trend in um broader commodity prices too and some of the linkages and i'm not quite sure whether it's necessarily linked to anything uh as broad as we've just been discussing in the last few moments but uh it does appear that when commodity prices and including for agriculture get on a bit of a roll they tend to they tend to have a self-fulfilling upswing. Yeah, there's the fear of missing out. So if you're um, uh, a buyer of these commodities, that you're one of the distributors that um, buys this agricultural product, you think, oh gosh, the prices have jumped 5%, 10%. I better get in, uh, even though growing conditions might be might be great and there's a good uh, plentiful supply, but there's nonetheless, there's that fear again that you get this bit of upside momentum. That could be one area that does correct a little bit. Uh, again, depending on... Gosh, depending on growing conditions, because in a sense, there's only so much you can eat. <laughs> yeah, all of us. Although I do my bit for the for the world economy, um, but there's only so much that you can consume. So the um, those markets tend to be ones that correct a little, in my observation, that correct a little more. That said, you know the fact that we've still got uh, the whole world economy growing strongly, uh, the whole world economy. Um, getting more and more people out of very low incomes into moderate incomes, moderate to middle, middle to upper. And we all know that you know, food consumption changes as your um, incomes level change, that you tend to move away from, you know, one classic case that I've, I've had a look at some years ago was China, that if I remember correctly, it was a sort of 1980, you know, more than half the foodstuffs were, were rice. And the other you know, 40% were vegetables and only 10% were sort of chicken and meat. Now that's sort of reversed as, as they become uh, higher income earners over there with their, with their incredible economic growth story of the last 30 or 40 years. So that could be a change that 
underpins prices because, you know, as I said before, it's not just the Australian economy that's growing rapidly from the from the COVID pandemic. Uh, the whole world economy is doing really quite well, and that growth is actually lifting incomes of many, many people right, right around the world. Mm. And I think the, the other thing to think about as well as moment is the energy costs, which which I, well, I always think, whether I'm right or wrong, is that a lot of energy costs are really a sort of a, a lead indicator of agriculture. Obviously, we've got our fundamental drivers, you know, basically rainfall is what's going to drive uh, whether we produce a big crop or a small crop. But just that's flown effect from energy. You know, we've got things like fertilizer, chemicals, fuel, three biggest inputs that we have for, for grain production. Yep. Driven by energy, you know, high coal, high, high gas, high Crude oil will lead to high fertilizer chemicals and obviously diesel. And, and I guess that's that's another thing that's happening at the moment is if we've got all of those things occurring at the moment is, is high energy prices. And that's where surely that must have a big impact on uh, inflation because it's such a key thing for, well, everything that we do. Everything, is, everything is energy. Yeah, well, you've touched on something that's a bit of a bugbear of mine for anybody who does follow me on Twitter, and that's how the focus of the Reserve Bank when they're analysing inflation is about wages growth. And um, as far as I know, that most businesses, now this is a very general comment because each business has a very, very different proportion of their cost base, which is wages. But on average, uh, in the Australian economy, about a quarter, give or take, of a firm's business costs are wages. So the Reserve Bank saying that, oh, because wages growth is so low, we're not so worried about the inflation pressures, <laughs> to me is a bit too simplistic. And as you alluded to, if the cost of my inputs, be that fuel, be that fertiliser in the case of agriculture, or be that raw materials, or be that freight costs, if you're an importer, exporter of particular goods and they need to go on a on a plane or a ship or whatever, and those freight costs have increased, that you're going to want to pass that on. And when you pass that on in, in higher prices, you keep your margins dead steady. So they don't change. You're not like price gouging or you know yeah. trying to make a super profit here. But when you do that, that is, that is in turn inflation. So you're quite right to allude that that is a real pressure for a lot of businesses that are growing. And for now, it appears as though a lot of businesses can increase their selling prices. But if there's competition that comes and you are paying, say, 5 10 15% more for your input costs and you're not getting uh, a higher pass-through into your final selling price, then you're clearly your margins are squeezed and you're under a lot of pressure. I don't think we're quite there yet, but that is something that I think is going to be very important when judging how how this inflation momentum goes, whether we can get these supply chain issues corrected and whether, you know, as you mentioned, this sort of, um, what do we call it, geopolitical conflict between Russia and uh, Ukraine and maybe China and the US with Taiwan and other things going on too. Who knows how these things play out? But, um, yeah, we all hope that they are resolved peacefully and with um, negotiation. And if so, we will see these oil prices come back down, I, I would assume. They usually do when these conflicts end, you know, the Gulf War and the Iraq War and 
all these other things. We've seen prices of oil, for example, just to, just to choose that one for a second. They do spike, they do increase massively, but when they sort of moderate in terms of their impact, we do get the correction occurring in some of these um, energy costs and the like. Always does. It sort of comes back to the fundamentals and, and it depends on the scale, scale of what happens. The scale um, and how long it lasts. You know, yep. sometimes, oh, another little example that pops up every now and then, though, so, so for example, with I think it was Hurricane Katrina. When was that, about 2005 or whatever? Yeah, that blew away a whole lot of the uh, oil um, platforms in the Gulf of Mexico. The price of oil shot up 15%. You thought, well, okay, I can understand in the short term why that happened. But as soon as those uh, oil platforms were back on deck and as soon as they were producing oil again, the price fell. So that was something that only lasted two or three weeks. But you're quite right. If we have a protracted conflict and there's... um, issues with Russia and its gas production and supply to the bulk of Europe, if there's a spillover into the Middle East and oil um, pressures there, then of course it's it's game on for a completely different scenario. But let's hope that that does not happen. Stephen, we, um, we, we've touched on it now already, these inflationary pressures and what they mean for, for interest rates in particular. So um, I think it's, you know, most of the financial markets overseas in the US are looking at uh, an impending rate rise there or going into the cycle of increasing interest rates in the US. Um, the Australian situation, like you said, with the Reserve Bank, they're being a bit more you know, moderate in their view in terms of taking their time. And, and that's often, the, you know, I mean, we don't always go lockstep with them, but, you know, there are, you know, when, when the US is starting to enter into a, a tightening phase, um, it's, it usually isn't that long uh, you know, that that, that that kind of comes through to Australia anyway. Um, and, and there is some forecasters talking about the prospect of maybe an interest rate increase towards the end of this year um, is, is some that I've seen. But I think most most are talking more into 2023 or maybe even 2024 that we start to see significant increases. What's your, what's your view around that in terms of, you know, is it, is it just a matter of keeping an eye on that um, inflationary band of the 2 to 3% that the RBA will be watching? Or do you think um, you know, some of these other supply chain factors are going to continue to you know, push our, our inflation up and we're going to have to move quicker on interest rates? Look, I think we're going to have to move it a little more quickly. I think the Reserve Bank, with their focus on wages, might have to change their tune a little bit. Now, um, forecasting interest rate increases or the timing of them is really difficult. However... <laughs> I'm sort of more confident about where interest rates will be in 12 or 18 months than I am you know, next month. Um, they do have to increase. And when you stop and think about it, you know, the, the 0.1% official cash rate was set, what was that, 18 months ago now? They set it on the assumption, you know, I looked at the, the statement they put out. When they cut rates to 0.1%, they assumed unemployment would be above 10%. They assumed inflation would be holding around 1.5% right through to 2023. So here and now, as we mentioned before, inflation's already at three and a half, unemployment's at 4.2%. So it's no longer needed. Now, it's just a question of when the first one happens and how many they do. But um, one way of looking at it, I don't think we're in for draconian rate hikes. So, you know, we're not going to get interest rates going up three or four or five percent. No, I don't think that's likely. More likely is a very gentle approach from the Reserve Bank and even you know, other central banks around the world. But they'll, they'll hike a quarter of a percent, sit back for a month or two, see what happens, another quarter, see what happens. And if you know, we do find that inflation does quickly revert back to the target or whatever, that's all they'll do. But if we do find that inflation is a bit more permanent into the system and we do get that unemployment rate below 4%, if we do see wages growth picking up to 
3.5%, for example, and the inflation rate stays high too, that they'll just keep going. They'll keep doing this quarter of a percent until they're confident that they've done enough to get that inflation rate back under control. So timing, oh gosh, you know, in, in theory, they could go now. And, and, and again, by going now, I don't mean a massive, you know, percentage point hike you know, tomorrow. It's more, let's just lift rates a quarter of a percent. That's not going to kill the economy. Uh, and it might be just sort of like, uh, you get a bit of a headache, you take your first Panadol, and okay, it's gone away, that's okay, I'm glad I took it though. But if you think, geez, it's getting worse and worse, you're glad you started yesterday on your first dose of medicine. And that's the way that I think the RBA yeah, may come to view their interest rate tightening, tightening cycle. A couple of early ones, it won't kill the economy. And I think most of us could sort of tolerate a half a percentage point increase in our borrowing costs. You wouldn't like it as much, but you know it's not going to kill me. Um, and from a more medium-term policy perspective, it might actually be a prudent thing to do. Uh, from, a, from a historical perspective as well, in terms of where interest rates are sat, like you alluded to in our uh, psychological assessment of saying interest rates very low, I think was was the term you used. You know, historically, we're at you know, incredibly low levels. And, and what you're talking about is maybe just moving back towards that more normalised kind of range or cycle. We're not, you and I are probably old enough, Stephen, to recall the, <laughs> the high interest rates of the late, uh, late uh, 80s. Uh, early oh, 90s, dear. You know? I remember them. Dear. Um, yeah. You know, so, and I think... We're Andrew not going might... there, by the way. There's, 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 you know, I'll, I'll, I'll swim across Sydney Harbour if, that, if that's the case. They're not going to... Well, yeah, that's, no, that's, that, 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 think... that was, was going to be my next question. Whenever we talk about interest rates with, with farmers, the first thing they talk about is 18 percent yeah as soon as there's any discussion of an increase it's oh we're going back to 18 percent not a chance they, they, these young farmers won't be able to survive with 18 percent they don't know I'm what just, it's like the, the question i have around that though is that and, and it's it, it's true of not just the farming fraternity it's also you know, borrowing and household borrowing you know if you look at the you know the the, the lack of wages growth through time and the growth in housing pricing and then th that means people having to borrow more and more um, you know, to, to, to purchase the house. So, so the indebtedness of the average Australian is probably higher than what it was back in the 80s and 90s. I'm, well, I'm, I'm sure it is. It so is, yes. from that perspective, um, we don't, people are more sensitive, I guess, now to interest rate change, right? And, and have we, this is the other, I guess there's two questions this week, more sensitive, so therefore, you know, more responsive when we get those incremental increases and we, and we do start to, you know, cut back and, and take it easy and spend less or whatever. But so we don't need to go as high, but also you've got that factor of, um, you know, there's so much more at stake, I guess, in terms of, um, you know, the exposure to debt is higher than what it was. So, you know, we only need a handful of increases for it to have a, a significant impact. You know, is that the way you see it? Yeah, correct. So, for, you know, if you've got a million dollars of debt now, you know, 1% has double the effect of having half a million dollar debt, you know, some years ago, and you get a 1% increase. So, uh, you get double the effect with 1% on a million as you do on half a million, just to use that as a rounding yep. sort of uh, example. So uh, in terms of your cash flow, so the fact that we ha now do have a, you know, the household sector in particular, but also business debt's been growing. You know, that we tend not to focus on that because everybody seems to be a little, a little housing obsessed here in Australia. We love house prices and all this other stuff. But um, yeah, business debt's also been growing this last um uh, 18 months or two years. And, you know, the outlook for business investments, very positive. So we do know from the various surveys out there that businesses are planning to borrow more, they're planning to uh, invest more. And so, you know, inevitably, the vast bulk of that money is borrowed. So in a sense, th these interest rate hikes, when they come, I won't say if, when they come, 
will actually have a fairly potent effect. And sort of that gets back to our earlier point, you know, 18 percent interest rates, you know, we, we won't see them again. Uh, but we will probably, if I was to sort of get my um, crystal ball out and have a look at where interest rates might be in a couple of years, um, we're probably going to revert back to sort of these official rates this is, being 2 to maybe 3% higher than they are today. I don't think they'll be even 5% higher than they are today, given that we do have that very elevated levels of, of debt in Australia and, you know, 5% would, would kill the economy and the Reserve Bank would not want to do that. What's mm. the what what's the average debt that they that somebody would be holding in in in, in household debt in and ho and housing? Do, do you know what the answer is? One hundred and eighty thousand dollars. Tiny. However, however, there's a lot of folk like me and um, you know the grey hairs that I've got show that you know my household debt's very low um, because my mortgage was taken out many many years ago. However. What is the most interesting thing is the average loan size in the last 12 months. So the people have now stepped up to the plate. So in a sense, yep. rate hikes, touch wood, don't have a huge direct impact on me. But if you're one of these people who have taken out a big loan in the last couple of years, you are the ones that are going to be uh, impacted most. And we look at the um, average loan size of the last couple of years. It's about 600000 Australia-wide in Sydney and Melbourne, of course, where house prices are the highest in the country, we're approaching sort of eight, nine hundred thousand. And um, just by the way, I was talking to a couple of mates in the banks just recently. They're saying that um, well over half the loans they're writing in Sydney and Melbourne for mortgages now are over a million. And they said you'd be shocked. He didn't tell me the number. You'd be shocked how many people for their mortgage, their, just their mortgage on their house is over two million. And that's a big number. So, you know, 1% on a $2 million mortgage is a hell of a lot of money you've got to find from your um, your disposable income if and when interest rates do go up. Do you think the average punter has got too used to low interest rates and that environment? <laughs> like, like to, to yeah. get back to you know that three or four percent cash rate, say, which isn't which isn't you know a massive kind of level. Um, yeah. Yeah. That'd that'd cause a lot of a shock to people. You know, if you saw if you saw yeah. borrowing rates back to eight, seven or eight percent, you know, so, some um, people would be hurt now in theory when you go to the your friendly bank and say i want to borrow some money for a mortgage what the bank is meant to do is say you know here's my income here's the current interest rate and this is how much we're going to lend to you in theory what they should do is as a stress test on your on your borrowing is see if you can still make the repayments if interest rates are three percent higher that's one of the benchmarks they use to say whether they'll lend me or you or any listeners money. So if interest rates do go up 3%, can you still make the repayments? If the answer is yes, we'll happily lend you the money. So there's that buffer there. It's a prudent thing, not only for the bank or the person who lends you the money, because they don't want you to <laughs> default on your loan, but nor do I want to default on my loan. So I'm actually pleased they do that. So in a sense, that's that's uh, important. But you, you're quite right to point out that um, you know, the last interest rate hike we had in Australia was in 2010. So it's been 11 and a half years since we've actually had an interest rate hike. So if you took out a mortgage any time since then, you've only got that friendly uh, email from your bank manager or letter that says, oh, we're reducing your uh, interest rate. And so when we start to get this tightening cycle, it'll be, I, I suspect it'll be a bit of a shock for many people who, are, who are sort of only assume interest rates go down. <laughs> is there any, is there any, it's probably anecdotal, but it, like I know from my point of view that we, we overpay our mortgage by a substantial amount. 
Yep. And and we have we have done because basically as soon as we took out a mortgage, interest rates started falling, so we just kept it the same and paid, well, actually we increased it further because a I'm Scottish and I don't like debt. And uh, is that relatively common or is that? It is. In fact, APRA, the Australian Prudential Regulatory Authority, so they're the regulators of the financial sector, they put out a paper, I can't remember, it's every quarter, every six months, whatever. But in December, so not that long ago, they put out their most recent report. Uh, and of course, they get all the data from the banks and all these other people. They said that about um, a third of all borrowers are at least two years ahead in their repayments because they did exactly what you're alluding to. When rates were cut, oh, we can afford to pay X thousand dollars per month. Um, rates were cut. Oh, let's just keep it there and overpay, if you like. Yep. And that's a very common thing. So that actually goes a little bit against the potency of those rate hikes we were talking about a minute ago. So for you, for example, I won't, I won't pick you out, but you know, for people like you, let's say, the, a rate hike comes along, you know, quarter of a percent, half a percent, the bank passes it on to you. You'll say, oh, look, we're still overpaying. So you don't have to change your uh cash flow at all because you think oh i'm already ahead and rates go up you know i'm not paying off my principal as fast so yeah. that sort of says that the first couple of rate hikes might not be all that um my no real uh, impact potent, at all. other than for people who have just taken out their debt in the last year or two whenever these interest rate and, and assumed that that two and a half or 2.75 percent mortgage rate will stay there they're the ones that are going to be impacted if it gets really tough for Andrew, he just sells that Porsche he was talking about earlier. They <laughs> yeah. see so, um, and and so we, we've we've mentioned along with interest rates, we've talked a little bit about wages growth, and, and we, you know anyone that's looked at that over the years has, has seen that wages growth has been fairly slow and low in Australia, um, but we're now in a situation where um, unemployment rate is very low, you know, lowest it's been in many years, and there is a real um, in some sectors as well with with because of the issues with borders and no backpackers for, for farmers to yep. take advantage of, um, you know, to get labour in, in in lots of areas is an incredibly tight market, and you know that's I think starting to reflect in you know people being offered more to move or to you know to to entice workers away. Do you think we're going to enter into a period now of um, of kind of sustained wages growth, um, given you know what's happening in that labour market. Yeah, look, I, I think we are, and and it's for the first time in oh, six or seven or eight years that we've actually got a bit of upside wages pressure because uh, anybody who's on a wage or a salary out there has known that it's been pretty tough to get a pay increase this last you know five, six, seven years, and now with the unemployment rate falling. Uh, the economy doing quite well, as we were just sort of saying, that growth, strong investments picking up and all these uh, other indicators that are quite positive. The demand for labour is really buoyant. You know, firms want to hire more people. And while these international borders have been closed, although that's changing now, as we know that the international borders are slowly but surely reopening. But for now, um, if you've wanted extra staff, you've got to actually basically take someone from the pool of unemployment. So that's why unemployment's shocked everybody and is, is so low. Um, and it's also a reason why the other thing that I'm hearing from a lot of my business contacts is, is two things. One is that when they do need to hire more people and they're having to poach talent, is the, is the term they use, from a competitor, yeah, they've got to pay up. So they've got to offer a substantial increase in the wage that their person they're wanting to hire um, is so they entice them to their business. And of course, if you're the employer of that person and they're good, a good person, you don't want to lose them. 
Um, when you get that, oh, mate, I want to resign. You say, no, 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 don't resign. What will it take to keep you? And they'll say, well, give me a 10% pay rise. <laughs> They're often doing that. So in a sense, now that's not uniform. You know, the public service, for example, you know, teachers and police and uh, nurses and the like, they're under public, generally under public service wages. So then they're going to be lagging a little bit behind. But in the private sector, I think these wage pressures are building, uh, and that's, of course, a cost to the uh, employer, but it's also a benefit for us consumers as a, as a whole. But, you know, if you're getting a wage increase, you know, we, we're we going to tend to spend a bit of that. You know, you get an extra, you know, 50, 100 bucks in your pay packet. Oh, beauty, I'm going to, you know, that, that's good news. Um, I, I am going to spend it, and that's sort of good for the economy as well. Unless you're Scottish like me and you just tend, <laughs> no matter what you make, just sits under the uh, under the bed. That's right. What, in the biscuit what, tin. Yeah. What, one, one, one of the other things that we sort of see as well is this, this backpacker labour is obviously a huge issue for, for agriculture. And one of the things that I looked at in the data yesterday that struck me as quite interesting is that you've got this number of people who apply for a second year visa. And so there's going to be a natural really lagged effect of uh, backpacker immigration. And that last year we had, you know, a good solid number of, of second year visas and, you know, 20 to 30,000 is roughly what you get in second year visas. They've done their two years now and they've gone home. So there's no second year visas. So that's 20 to 30,000 that have gone from the system. So it's actually going to take probably a year or two before things, providing borders open and, and things stay stay well it's going to take a while for that to actually come back into in, into sort of normal sort of levels just 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 the second visas alone not to mention yeah. the uh, not to mention the actual um first visa applicants so people coming here for the first time and i think other countries are facing the same issue like why is a graduate somebody graduating from uni who might have taken a year out to come to australia you know go to bondi beach and then spend a bit of time on a farm they're not necessarily going to do that because unemployment in a lot of other places like the UK is low. Yeah. So they're going to take a job there. Well, let's just take a job straight out of uni and uh, and just stay there. So there's going to be a couple of years of gap where I think we're going to have low, uh, low backpacker labor, which will in yep. effect impact farmers. But the other thing that, like anecdotally, like my wife uh, is, a, is a doctor and she talks to a lot of people in, in the UK who are just saying, no, I'm not going to come to Australia. Uh, because it's anecdotal as well, obviously, but they don't want to come to Australia because they're fearful that if they if they come to Australia, uh, what happens if there's another COVID 2.0, and then they get stuck there for two years where they can't see their family, they can't go back, they can't have the family over. So I think when I was in the UK uh, in in December and and January, like people were taking the mickey out of me saying, oh, better close down the six cases. <laughs> and that's the perception from everyone is that uh, we're a bunch of, uh, you know, fearful sort of people when it comes to these things. So. Yeah, look, I think that's changing. And, and you're quite right to be cautious. You know, I don't think the what do we call it, uh, the immigration floodgates, and that includes you know backpackers and the like, is going to be returning to where it was. If you think back to pre-COVID, so two and a, two and a bit years ago, three, four, five years ago, Australia had you know approximately 250 to 300,000 people in total, this is, um, net migration into Australia, and that provided a source of labour. 
you know, these people demanded housing. And it's one reason when you think back to the debate back then, it's been sort of uh, put to the sideline recently, is that it created congestion in the big cities because most of these people want to live in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane. You know, we had pretty poor quality public transport. They, you know, worked, got a job and all the rest of it. So you had this position where uh, a lot of the economic consequences from higher immigration, don't get me wrong, I think a, there's a right amount of immigration for Australia, but clearly pre-COVID, we had a lot. And while it did provide a lot of jobs for some businesses, it created headaches in other parts of the economy. So it, this may well be an issue in the upcoming election campaign. I, I don't know. I haven't heard a lot about it from either side, to be honest. But you know, what is the optimal level of immigration? Is it what we had pre uh, COVID, I'd say no, that's probably too high. Is it what we had during the middle of COVID? It's zero. No, that's too low. Um, so there's this area in the middle. And I must confess, I don't know what that number is. But somewhere between zero and 250,000 is the right number. Whether that's 100, 150,000 people, 200,000, I'm not sure. But I think optimally, we have, you know, it's, look at it a bit like red wine. You know, a little bit of red wine's good. Too much red wine, you have a nasty hangover. Immigration, a little bit's good. You know, moderate amounts good. Too much, you can create problems elsewhere. Well, okay, you're perfectly right. You know, it's 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 a calculation of infrastructure investment, and, yep. and that's probably something that's probably been a bit behind the ball, so to speak, in, in Australia in probably the last ten years or so. Yep. And and so <laughs> you have to calculate it based on on schools, roads. You know, we well, Matt and I both live west of of Melbourne. And uh, driving into Melbourne in a in an average day is okay now, but mm. during co- pre-COVID times it was a nightmare because mm. it was still a double lane freeway, and just it's not taken. There's not enough, not not enough investment for for the sheer volume of houses going up in those areas. And that, and that's right. That infrastructure thing is really important. It's not just and again it's relating to housing too. You know, people, you know, a lot of people just can't afford in the you know, that inner, inner area of Sydney and Melbourne and even increasingly Brisbane now. Uh, and it's all real to build houses sort of in the in the fringes of the cities. But unless there's good transport, either road or public transport, good schools to send your kids to, a shopping centre where you can just zip down and buy your groceries and these sort of things, and a hospital or a doctor or something, you don't want to live there. You know, it's just too hard to do your day-to-day living. So in a sense, that infrastructure thing is not just, you know, roads and airports and all these things, as, as important as they are, don't get me wrong. Hmm. Um, it is also housing. It is also, yeah, that what do we call it? The social infrastructure, of, yeah, shops and schools and these sorts of things that, you know, state governments and the federal government, to be fair, do have to invest more money in. I saw, um, I saw not that long ago uh, on Twitter, there was a commentator talking about, I think there's been a flattening of the yield curve in the States. And um, in previous times, that flattening of the yield curve has kind of indicated that there may be a recession around the corner. And that's happened you know, in previous times. And then they went on to say, you know, with the prospect of that type potential recessionary environment, um, that with, uh, you know, things like high input costs, you know, and you know, the supply side constraints, high wages growth, all these kind of supply side um, pressures that we're going to move towards a, a potential to stagflation, you know, and I just, you know, <laughs> is, that, um, is that a little bit henny-penny behaviour? I mean, obviously, in Australia, we've got such high... Um, you know, high employment rates and 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 the workforce we just spoke about it being so tight. I think it's unlikely we're going to see it. But is that is that a legitimate concern that we could ever go back to a stagflationary environment that we saw in the seventies? Well, it's a funny look. That's a fantastic point that you raise, and it's 
doing my head in when I stop and think about it for too long. Because the thing that the really interesting thing is that, you know, as, as we said at the very beginning of, of our chat, that inflation, you know, Australia, US, UK, New Zealand, Canada, you know, is high. It's really high, 13, 40 year highs in most of those uh, countries. And central banks, while they've started the rate hiking cycle in some of them, they haven't started in Australia, they haven't started in the US. And so when you talk about stagflation, does that mean that, you know, uh, the very easy money that's out there now. People can borrow, you're paying minimal interest. Oh, let me borrow another million and more and more. Yeah. So you get this incredible borrowing boom, which is inflationary, you know, as people have more access to more capital and more credit that they borrow like crazy. And then do we get this position where, you know, this high inflation is met with small, you know, relatively small interest rate hikes, as we've been just discussing. So 2%, you know, that's not going to kill the economy, I don't think. But then people say, well, hang on, given how much debt mortgage holders have, it could actually kill the economy. So you get this position in 18 months or two years, maybe, where inflation is still 4 or 5%, but GDP, the economy is going backwards. And that's the, that's the disaster, if you like, of the uh, 1970s, which, again, is another way to sort of talk about what's happening in the, in the global sphere now, you know, with oil prices close to 100 US dollars a barrel and all these other you know, derivatives of oil, you know, incredible price pressures there that you get this position where even with a weak economy, inflation is still really high because there's something else driving that inflation. And that's that's a worst case. Look, what probability? It, it, it's, it's on the radar. It's not in the middle of the radar, but that sort of thing's on the radar. And that would be a a really problematic issue if it were to happen. And, you know, we know how it was solved in the 70s and that was, even more rate hikes and a really nasty recession in the early 80s. I don't know. Again, most listeners are probably too young to remember that. And I'd only just, I was at uni then. But I do remember we had about three or four years of 10 and 11% unemployment rate. You know, everything was going backwards at a rapid rate. It was arguably the worst recession that we've seen since World War II. I know the 1990s recession was pretty bad. Um, but the early 80s recession was pretty horrible. Yeah, that was my uh, that was my kind of teenage years. I think so. Um, yeah. I I think that's why I'm relatively risk averse when it comes to interest rates and borrowing as well. A bit like a uh, bit like my uh, co-host here on the show. Oh, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just trying to think, but that was probably a couple of years you, before, you, before you, I was you, born. You, I was, I was, I was, I was you, <laughs> There's no substitute for experience. That's that's what I say as I'm getting older. <laughs> no, that's it. So we're coming up for an election this year. Uh, again, seems constant. I think if, for me, it seems constant because I have to vote here and the UK. So it feels like a, there's always an election. Uh, but the when it comes to interest rates and whatnot, uh, one of the things that will undoubtedly be the big talking point will be uh, negative gearing. Yeah. What, what's, what's, you know, obviously, I think Labour's probably going to look and try and discuss that. I doubt there's going to be much changes. What impact would it have on on things if if we got rid of neg negative gearing yeah look i think i think labor who got burnt badly in 2019 my i think they're going to be very very cautious and, and i think the, the the analysis from the political watches are they're a small target so they're sort of not saying terribly much and they're letting you know the morrison government self-destruct if you know what i mean i think that's the analysis yeah. that a lot of people are suggesting if you look at the polls you know labor ahead the betting markets something dear to my heart dare i confess it you know <laughs> labor are well ahead they're, they're pretty hot favorites actually to win now, i know they were last time 
But, you know, the, the momentum right now seems to be favouring Labor. So they're probably not going to be wanting to scare the horses, so to speak, to mix my metaphors. So, yep. um, look, which is also be- dear to your heart, which is also dear to your heart. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I'll tell you a little bit more about that another day, perhaps. But, um, you know, I, I think, yeah, to, to be to be fair, as with my just pure economist hat on and nothing else, negative gearing is bad policy, you know. It's it's uh, creates a distortion in the housing market. Investors can get you know huge tax benefits from gearing up, you know, leveraging up as much as they can and buying investment properties. And the stories we hear, and I, I think they're true that you know, at an auction, there's these young couple, first home buyers, you know, wanting to buy their first home. Someone who's an investor who's got you know plenty of equity behind them, you know, the asset of their own house that they bought for you know, $80,000 30 years ago in Sydney, um, they bid up the property and they outbid the first home buyer. So you get this home ownership decline occurring and it's partly, largely driven by the investor demand. So, you know, if if you want to improve affordability, you'd get rid of that tax break. And I call it a tax break deliberately because, you know, if you've got negative geared property, you know, when you put your tax return in, your fellow taxpayers give you a bit of a subsidy on your interest costs on your your, uh, debt. So, I can see why you'd want to get rid of it, but uh, roughly one in seven Australians has a negative geared property. So you're going to offend some of them, I reckon. Um, and a lot of the others who don't have one would aspire to have one. Oh, so well. you're probably <laughs> going to offend them. Um, and that's, so and that's, that's, the why, issue. So that's why tax reform is such a difficult, difficult thing in Australia because, you know, and this, and this is not being critical, but there are a lot of vested groups who would lose out with tax reform. And, you know, they're pretty vocal about it. There's no, nowhere else in the world really does negative gearing on property, does it? Not quite like that, no. Some other some other um, uh, countries, just even in your own occupied house, have interest costs as a, as a tax deduction, but also you pay capital gains tax on the house. So yeah, again, yeah. I can't see anybody <laughs> in Australia doing that. So the housing the housing sector is largely uh, immune from from tax policy changes. I'm afraid. Mm. No, Sorry, I was going to say, um, I wasn't sure if you'd finished on the housing thing, so I'm going to switch across to currency. Yeah. No, um, go, go, go currency. Here, here, here we go. <laughs> well, we speak about, like, there is someone on the podcast here that's a burnt out currency trader of about 12 years. So, um, And so we do occasionally focus. Obviously, you alluded to it at the start, Steve, and the, the yeah. implications that currency have for inputs coming in for the farmer or for indeed, you know, how, how competitive they are in selling their product. Um, yeah. I think the last time we spoke about currencies on the, sh- on the podcast um, in any real depth was with um, one, of our co- one of our correspondents from Western Union, and that was when a lot of the banks were forecasting the Aussie up to into the mid-80s. Um, yeah, I think that, that, was the, that was the bet that we had that they said... Uh, if it went up... If, I 85? Said if it went 80, <laughs> I was going to run down Collins Street in my underwear. Um, and you know, so and we were at about we were about 78 and a half, 79 cents, and everyone was saying it was going up to there. And I you know, I said, I think you'd be surprised to see it above 80. And subsequently it's it's kind of come down to where we are now. Um and and we've got this situation now where you know it's obviously volatile because of some of the issues that's happening in the Ukraine, and we're seeing that impact in US equities and US dollar. So a lot of what I think the movement we've seen the Aussie appreciate in the last few days, I think on the back of probably US dollar weakness more than anything else. Um, but my, my, my personal view remains that if we're under 75 cents, I think we've still got 
the ability to test back down into the high 60s is what I'm thinking. And part of that narrative is also around what I think is going to happen with interest rates in the US and they're going to lead the way and, and put that kind of interest rate differential pressure onto the Aussie. And, and so that's my kind of view. But have you got yeah. a strong thought on where you think uh, currencies are going to head from here and now, or the Australian yeah. dollar is going to head Look, from the, the Aussie. There's usually a couple of things that drive the Aussie. One is commodity prices. Uh, and on that measure alone, the Aussie should be higher. You know, our terms of trade, so the relative price we get for all of our export, and, but that also includes not just ag products, but also but iron, ore. You know, iron ore, coal, natural gas, and those prices have gone ballistic. And, and things like copper too, they're not quite as big, of course, but you know, they're, they're, they're not unimportant commodities for us. And so the commodity price, um, when you're sort of working out what should the Aussie be, would be much higher based on that. Where it gets that bit of a downdraft, I suppose, is as you alluded to, the Fed's probably going to hike uh, interest rates in the US before our RBA does it here in Australia. You know, that's certainly what the futures market's pricing in. So in a sense, and, and as I mentioned already, New Zealand, Canada and England have hiked rates. So our interest rates now are below uh, those other countries. So if you're, uh, and this is how the sort of currency market works on those interest rate differentials. So if you're a, you know, fund manager, a superannuation manager sitting in Japan or in Germany or in London, you can say, well, I put my money into Australia. You still might, but with the interest rates higher at home, <laughs> uh, you won't. Uh, and I think that's, or you're less likely to, I should say. So that interest rate gap is the thing that's probably causing that, that downside risk. So, you know, there's, there, there so we've got conflicting things pushing and pulling the Aussie dollar. The thing that, are, the other thing that's also a little bit, of, that is a positive is, uh, and it's linked to commodity prices, we are running massive international trade surpluses at the moment. You know, we're running monthly surpluses of, Gosh, seven, eight, nine, ten billion per month. You know, I'm old enough to remember the Banana Republic days with Paul Keating. You know, when we were running trade deficits that were multiples of the surpluses that we're running now, and that's when you know we did have a problem. Now we're exporting our pants off. The the value of the uh, export dollars is very high, and in theory, that should be more of a positive thing for the Aussie as well. So I don't mean to be sort of one side, one foot either side of the fence, but I think I have to come down on one foot either side of the fence. That you know, in that. 70 to 75 range. See, I know it's reasonably large range. I apologise for that. But, you know, that's what it's probably going to trade at for the next few months. And, uh, and at that level, it seems to be like it's fair for everybody. It's fair for people who need to import machinery and equipment and these sort of things. And it's also pretty fair for exporters as they're, um, you know, selling their product into the global markets. Yeah, no, look, I, I think that's a fair point too. Like my, my bias is probably slightly to the downside, but only marginal. Um, and and so you know, and, and I think if you look historically, the the twenty year average Aussie dollar price is something like seventy seven or seventy five cents or whatever. So we're not we're just slightly below the long run average, which is yeah, what you're alluding to that it's 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 a reasonably fair price whether you're an yeah, importer or an exporter. It's about right now. And look, and, and often, and again, people who follow me on Twitter, I usually have I can from time to time have very strong views on financial markets. But on the Aussie, I'm sort of neutral at the moment. I, you know, I can't put my hand on my heart and say, look, we're going to eighty or we're dropping to sixty. Five. No, I, uh, 72, 73, where we are now, yeah, probably about right. Yeah. I think j just for farmers' perspectives as well, uh, we, we saw a very large rise in Chicago wheat futures overnight, which was about $21 a tonne, <clears throat> which, which is a really good rise. Uh, however, we also saw the Aussie dollar rising uh, yesterday. And so that was worth, if the Aussie dollar had stayed at the same level as I had over the previous couple of days, that was worth an extra $4 a tonne on top of that as well.
so so it does have a major impact upon it uh, oh yeah it, it, when, the, the Aussie is swings. a huge issue and in fact the interesting thing they're just to sort of just to go back to the rba thinking they've, they've been a bit less vocal the last few months but certainly during 2019 2020 2021 uh, they they were focusing on the aussie dollar they would inverted commas prefer it to be lower than it was and because they can see that the that a lower aussie dollar has a pretty pretty significant effect on export earnings and therefore the performance of the economy. Now, they've been a bit quiet on it recently, but I think if you were to sort of press them, they'd say, look, we'd prefer the Aussie to be low 70s than high 70s. Mm. Oh, well, I think, look, we've covered off on, I think, uh, inflation, interest rates, housing affordability, wages, growth, uh, currencies. I think, but you know, that's, um, that's a good uh, set of coverage. I, I think if you hadn't have answered poorly to the black pudding and to the crocs <laughs> yeah. we, oh. we might have afforded you another half an hour of a discussion but um <clears throat> now we can see we're, we're you know apart from our oh, interest yeah. in markets we're, we're very different um in, in our love of certain um, items with all due respect black pudding look i, I can't do it I, I look i you can see me now i i i'm a good eater <laughs> but that's you, one we'll, that i can't we'll get, do i'm sorry have you, have we'll you, give you, you one have chance you, have to, you ever tried it or yes i have what, um uh, and and uh, and look, I, I I'm a meat eater, of course, but that there's just maybe it's a mental block rather than a taste issue. I don't. We'll know. give you one chance, one chance for redemption here, um, Stephen. Okay. Ha- what about haggis? Haggis, um, do you know? I've only ever had it once, and that was about thirty years ago. So I I think I'm out of practice on that one to be able to pass judgment. <laughs> but that and again, that's not me having a cop out. Um, it's just not something that comes into the into the menu in in my life. I must confess that um that that kind of black pudding or blood pudding has it, there are kind of variants of it. Obviously, it's a it's an English kind of and, and popular in Scotland as well. And but there are black pudding uh, type products in Spain and in um in Germany as well. They have that blood pudding. Right, right, hunt. Matt. We're not here to be. To continue to be the the premier salespeople for the black pudding I'm just, industry in Australia. I'm, just about, I'm going to ask a question. The, the man doesn't want to try it. <laughs> no, no, but I'm going but, to ask. But we, but we will post some. So. I'm leading. I'm leading to something because, like I said, my partner's Hungarian. They have a tradition in that Eastern European that they the the, the blood of the pig when they're doing their their, their, their sausages and stuff. Yeah. Um, and I imagine by your surname, Stephen, that there's Greek origin there or something. Greek, uh, indeed, yes. So is that is there and even the Italians have a, a, a chocolate based dessert that they put pig's blood into? But is there any uh, traditional Greek cooking where, where oh. there's the use of a blood product or not? Not that I'm aware of in terms of the blood product, but we do the fantastic lamb souvlakis and masaka mm. with the minced meat eggplant, and the, yeah. uh, eggplant and things on top. Absolutely delicious. Um, but I can't. Again, maybe it's um, what I've been exposed to in terms of the Greek cooking that I haven't seen anything that's got that's got the blood products as part of the base of what what uh, they're making. No, they, they, uh, they, some some people don't like them because they can be quite awful. Oh, oh no! Yeah, well, <laughs> sorry. That's the the redeeming quality that we know. Stephen's a big fan of puns. Um, so we're, it's you know just like your view on the Aussie dollar. We're a little bit balanced with you, Stephen. We we like some of your. We love your passion for Marcus. We love your puns. Um, we're not so happy that you don't like black pudding and, and awful products. And, you know, but, that, and, but, that, uh, but that can change all, all the time. <laughs> right. you, you, we'll work you, well, on it. We'll work on it. Yeah, exactly. If I pop but down to Melbourne and you guys are in town, I'll, I'll catch up and you'll have to um, you'll have to give me a sample then. Yeah, well, yeah. Do, well, we, do we the hard the sales pitch on me. See if you can see if you can sway me. 
try well maybe the, the Spanish variety of black pudding at uh, in San Telmo. The, uh, I'll try most things at least once. Um, <laughs> once you once once you go black pudding, you never go back. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I think it's getting silly, so we might wind up. It's been fabulous having you on, Stephen, for um, your, your intellect and knowledge of um, of markets of all types. So it's been a really interesting chat. Um, you know, I hope, hope uh, the listeners enjoyed it. And um, yeah, thanks for thanks for uh, joining us. Thank An absolute pleasure. Look, it was a really good chat, and thank you, and all the very best to everyone. I hope uh, everyone can uh, can do well through through twenty twenty two. Excellent. See you when you got nothing on. Ciao for now. 